This is a story set in New York City. It centers on a controversial photo taken of a young girl in 1977. Author Tammy Greenwood tells the story through the eyes of this child model and actress who's all grown up today with a daughter of her own. There is a striking generational mother-daughter story here. So that's where we begin, talking about the novel Such a Pretty Girl on this Desideratum. Desideratum is a Latin word. It means things that are desired as essential. This podcast celebrates storytelling as essential. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, showcasing the talents of my author and narrator friends. I hope you'll hear an artist you love or find your next favorite wordsmith. is very recently empty um, and I was writing this in anticipation of our youngest taking off and so I think that you know I'm very much exploring what that like physical actual physical separation is you know which is what what Ryan is experiencing with Sasha leaving they're about to be physically separated and you know she's created this warm little happy little nest for her daughter um, which is very very much in stark contrast to her own childhood. You know, she's created this idyllic world for her daughter and now she's has to let her go um, and how hard that is. And I think it's something, you know, every mother, every father can relate to in a very deep primitive sort of way. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It was, it was as if you had found words for things I've been feeling. So yeah, primitive or universal or just primal, primal. Right. Yeah. So this is happening on two timelines, this story. But they're both through the mind of Ryan. So this begins and we have an article that's released. And Ryan reads the article and she says that uh, the journalist in the article is unaware or indifferent to the wound she has just clawed open with her words. And I always love a words are powerful reference. The byline in this article, though, is the question that sort of forms the basis for the whole story. And that byline is mother or monster. Right. Right. So one of our timelines is in the 70s. And you kind of give us this lens to the 70s that is, well, it was a different time. (laughs) Yeah. And when we judge it through the lens of today, the lyrics to the songs and the the storylines and the sitcoms and the movies and the advertising images mm-hmm. really are cringy. Yeah, at best. Cringy at best. <laughs> Horrifying at worst. <laughs> so I guess, can you talk a little bit about how you use the real references of the time to, to give us that feeling? Sure. Um, Well, I'm a child of the 70s. I was born in 69. So I'm actually just a little bit younger than Ryan. Um, And so I grew up with those images and those sitcoms and those messages. You know, um, the Love's Baby Soft ad is the one that finds its way into the book. It's it's renamed as Baby Love. But um, we all are familiar with Love's Baby Soft, which was a perfume from the 70s, 80s. And the catch phrase, innocence, it's sexier than you think. 
and you know we didn't think about that back then um but you look at those images now through this contemporary lens and it's horrifying i mean it's really insane and the the interesting thing to me is that you can't tell in those photographs whether it's a young girl that's made up to look like somebody who's older or someone who's older made up to look like a child. And the fact that this image is sexy means that either the woman is being infantilized or a child is being sexualized. And either one is just horrible, you know, and I don't tend to write books with an agenda, like some message I want to drive home, but I have things I care about and I have, you know, questions and those always find their way into my fiction. So I start with the story and then these concerns that I have and these things that plague me or interest me or obsess me come to the surface. And I think, you know, in the last several years of the Me Too movement and we've all, all women are looking back at things that have happened to us in the past through a different filter, things that were said to us by teachers or by spouses, by boyfriends, by whomever, employers, you know? So really the project for Ryan in this story is to examine her own childhood and her own life through that contemporary lens, um, which she is reluctant to do, you know, because that is scary. It's digging open some, some old wounds, you know, and that's why there is a dual timeline. I could have easily told Ryan's story exclusively in the past, but I needed to have it be purposeful. For me, a lot of my novels take place in two timelines. And I think it's because I'm always hoping that my characters are revisiting their past for a reason, you know, and so that it makes their current day situation better, you know, and, and so she's, she's dealing with a lot in her own current day time period, And the evolution that she makes in that time period, I think, is very much informed by her reckoning with her past. Yeah, and I think you've done this great job of capturing the voice of her as a 10-year-old. There's so many places in it where you're experiencing with her things that are happening in that childhood timeline. You know, that voice of... Um, there's a there's a naivety to it. Also, the emotions of the age. You're capturing. You're writing um, that perspective so well. And I, I wondered how you could tapped into that. How you thought about that? That's a good question. I think I've always loved child narrators. There's just something so beautiful about an untainted perspective, you know. And um, I've written several books with child if not a first person, then a very close third person narration. And, you know, the books that I love, when I think about the books that I love, a lot of them do have child narrators. I remember reading Bastard Out of Carolina and just being like, I want to write this kind of book. I've never struggled to, to take on that perspective. And I think it's because my childhood is very vivid to me for whatever reason. My memory of like yesterday is terrible. <laughs> you know? I can't tell you, you know, anything I did this week, but I can like conjure childhood very evocatively um, because those details are so rich in my memory. Um, I can capture what it felt like to be a kid pretty easily. Yeah. Uh, that's what I think. I was responding to, yeah, 
the details were there, obviously, of the time period and of the city and of her, her, her surroundings, but also just how she was feeling going through it. And I think sometimes also there are just these like out of the mouth of babes moments, right, where her her perspective is so laser spot on, you know, and what she and how she's seeing the things around her. Mm-hmm. There's a moment where she's talking um, with her. She's talking about her mom, I guess. And it's she says something like, it's the first time I realized her wanting, meaning her mom's wanting, could be a violent thing. Mm-hmm. And she's talking about fame and this sort of desire for fame and, and the, the monster part that that brings out in her mom. Yeah. And that she then is experiencing this in childhood. She also has this sense of kind of wanting something right outside of her reach that sort of sense of need and want right right I loved the way that you explained that through the emotions of a child like such an adult but something we can relate to that like it stems that grows out of those childhood experiences yeah exactly and you know I think that's the key there is this idea of wanting um it, the key to all stories is about figuring out what is what it is that your characters want when I'm teaching, we talk a lot about yearning, like what does your character want more than anything? And how does that manifest in their actions? And so I was very conscious of that when I was writing this book is Fiona's want is so big and her desire and her ambition. And this is really very much a book about ambition. And so if you can tap into what a character wants, it doesn't matter what that want is, a reader is going to understand that. Mm. you know, and, and find, um, if not sympathy, then at least empathy and connection and relatability. Yeah. And so I, I very much was conscious of, of her yearning, but her yearning is dangerous yearning. It makes her moral compass go kind of askew, you know, and, and that was the whole idea is like, what, what does yearning do to a person when it's so big and how does that affect their behavior and make them do things they might not otherwise do? Yes. And it gets to the core of what's broken in her motherhood. Yeah. Yeah, it is. She's fortunate to have, you know, a community around her that, that will take care of her child when she fails, you know, in both, in both of the settings that Ryan and Fiona are in, you know, the Lost River setting, which is a communal sort of lifestyle. And then also at West Beth, which is the artist residence where they live in the city where there's always somebody to pick up Fiona's slack. Let's talk about the settings a little because there's something very pastoral and peaceful about the Vermont setting. And then they are in New York in this gritty time frame where it feels dangerous. And yet there's also this community mm-hmm. of artists, right? And so in both of these settings, there are there's art. Right. And in both of those settings, there's also children, family, connection, relationship, and and also really danger. In the very beginning, there's a scene where there's a there's a hornet, uh, a description about a bee. And even in this pastoral setting, there's like there's things that are dangerous to children. Right. And you echo that in both settings. Right. You know, I grew up in Vermont. And so, you know, many of the dangers that were around me growing up were things like there's the scene near the beginning where they're jumping across the river on a rope swing, no parents around, you know, and a lot of the things that were dangerous in the city and New York in the 70s is very 
dangerous place for anybody. And, you know, Ryan is a, has anxiety and has it since she's little and it carries through her entire life. And so I wanted to sort of explore that in those different settings. But I also wanted to have this lovely bubble in both places of love and community. And, you know, there are many mothers in this story. There's Serafina, who runs the summer theater stock community. And there's um, Liliana, who is Gilly's mom in the in the West Beth community. And then, you know, there are other parental figures like Henri, who becomes basically a father, grandfather sort of figure to Ryan once they move to New York. So there are people constantly taking care of her and keeping her safe. Yes. Because in both of these contexts, in both of these settings, children still need to be kept safe. Yeah. Yeah. Children always need to be kept safe. Yeah. I'm glad that you brought up her anxiety because I think that the way that she ex- experiences the the panic as a child, mm-hmm. when she doesn't really have the language right. to talk about it, you give her language to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Like how you uh, how you convey to the reader what she's feeling and how she's feeling and what triggers these feelings right. and then what soothes these feelings. Like it was so. I just, I loved that. I thought it was so well done. One of my favorite um, places where you've written about it is there's a description of the library. And it's the first time we hear about words on the page bringing her calm. I mean, before that, I think it feels like it's, she's in the arms of a friend. Gilly is her friend who soothes her with his physical presence and his words. But in that library, we get this hint of how she can also be soothed by words on the page, which I thought you gave that language without giving it the clinical language that we're all maybe familiar with, right? Because she wouldn't have that as a little as a little kid. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, I, I think I was an anxious child, not to the extent that Ryan is, but you know, it was easy to capture that feeling, the physical sensations of being anxious or scared. And and especially for a child who, you know, my parents were very stable and wonderful people, but, you know, imagine taking the anxiety that I had as a kid and then transporting myself into a situation where there weren't, you know, isn't the safety that, um, that I had as a kid. Um, it was pretty easy. And, you know, that's sort of your job as a writer, right, is to take those things that you have personally experienced or felt and then borrow them, you know, and, and give them to your character and explore them through a different, a different character. Um, so I think, yeah. And reading, you know, reading is always solace. And you also just mentioned Henri, who is, who becomes a father figure to her or a grandfather figure, maybe to her when they moved to New York, uh, her and her mother, and he's a photographer. There are a couple of photographers, actually, in the story. You, you, in both timelines, you give us a photographer that Ryan loves. It happens to be someone in her life that she truly loves. And um, I read that you're a photographer or that you dabble in photography, right? And so mm-hmm. I thought that was an interesting hobby, career, profession to give to some of these really endearing and close to Ryan characters. Mm-hmm. One of the things I really liked about Henri's the way you describe his photography, when he captures a moment and he feels that the subject, it's really personal to that subject, that the image belongs to them. Right. 
that it's theirs personally. Mm-hmm. I felt like that was kind of a theme, the way he articulated that and the way you could feel that in the way that he was taking pictures. Yeah. I was just talking to one of my best friends, um, just finished the book. And that was the first thing she wanted to talk about was, you know, there's the question, you know, and some people have been like, well, Henri was using her too. You know, he was using her image using, and I said, but there's a difference, you know, and I think that, that he knows here, there are lines that he will not cross. And this, the, the photograph that's at the center of the whole story is one that in the end she asks to make with him. He does not take that from her. She asks to make that photograph. And um, it was really important to me in this story to, because a photograph is at the center on one of Henri's photographs is at the center of the plot, is that I needed to explore what that photograph meant to the different people, the people who made it, um, meaning the model and the photographer, but then how it was perceived and used and commodified and exploited by other people and what everybody's agenda was with it. And I think you know, that's the interesting thing about art is that it it becomes something different depending on the viewer and you know who possesses it, who owns it. Um, when I was talking to my my friend about you know um, Henri and where he draws the lines, he has a drawer in his. He's French and he has the drawer in his in his studio that says tristesse, which is sorrow or sadness in French, and that's where he keeps those images that where he hasn't been able to maybe track down the Hida Street photography. So if he, if he isn't able to track down the person that he captured, he stores those photos that capture people's sadness or sorrow um, in a place where he's not selling them. He's not, you know, putting them in magazines or in galleries. And um, I think he has a very functioning moral compass, whereas, you know, the other characters in this story do not. Um, And that was really important was for Ryan to have someone grounded like that in her life, I think. That's a good place to pause and put you in the story. In the Westwood artist community in New York City, which was a real place, we'll talk about more in a few minutes. In this section of the audiobook, you're with the main character, Ryan, when she's a child. And your guide is narrator Mara Wilson, who herself is known for film acting roles from her childhood. She was Natalie in Mrs. Doubtfire in 1993, and played the lead role in the film adaptation of Roald Dahl's Matilda in 1996. Today, she is a stage actress, a voice artist, a writer, and a playwright. This is from Such a Pretty Girl, written by T. Greenwood, narrated by Mara Wilson. Gilly gave me a tour of the ninth floor. He seemed to know everybody who lived behind the doors, if not by name, then by occupation. Painter, he said, pointing. Acrobat, flute, mime, composer. He said that in a fancy voice and waved his arms like a conductor. I tried to remember what he told me, as if he were a teacher and I was memorizing something for a test. When we got to the elevators, he stopped. Let's see what Henri is doing. Henri was the man who had come to the door the day before. 
He hadn't stayed long, but had introduced himself to my mother and me, and told her that if she needed headshots to bring to her auditions, that he was more than happy to take them for her. She had nodded, grateful, and penciled the appointment in her planner, where she scribbled down all the cattle call auditions she could find in the back of backstage. The only photo she had to bring to the audition today was over three years old, and wasn't really a headshot at all, just a black and white picture of her sitting on the riverbank at Lost River. In the photo, she looked like she was far away, a look that always made me feel sort of sad and scared. Like she was somehow both there and not there at the same time. We took the elevator down to the second floor. Henri answered the door and clapped his hands together at the sight of us. Allo, he said, grinning. Gamin, gamin. Henri's apartment had a long, narrow foyer that opened into a large open space. I followed Gilly and Henri, who led us into the room, and then stood there, arms outstretched, like the ringmaster of a circus. The parquet floor was the same as the one in Gilly's apartment, but in the center of the room were heaps of what looked like bearskins, a furry sea surrounding a pale green velvet sofa, a large console TV, and a lumpy red armchair patched with black electrical tape. Along the left wall was a giant card catalog, like I'd seen at the Quimby Athenaeum back at home. And on the right were floor-to-ceiling shelves stuffed with books, and piles of them on the floor as well. Bienvenue, he said, bowed at the waist, and made a flourish with his left hand before gesturing, as if to say, feast your eyes. Every inch of the remaining walls was covered with framed art and photos and posters, including a life-sized circus sideshow poster. Strange girls, it said. Why were they born? The brightly colored poster featured illustrations of girls with long necks, mermaid tails instead of legs, or no legs at all. My mother had taken me to the circus once, set up at the fairgrounds in Quimby. But she had not allowed me to enter the tents advertising the lobster boy and bearded lady. They'll give you nightmares, she said. Nothing upset my mother more than when I woke up screaming and sweating, delirious with whatever monster had invaded my dreams. There was a desk at the opposite side of the apartment, with shelves almost all the way to the top of the high ceiling, littered with more books and old-fashioned toys, a rusty jack-in-the-box, and a threadbare monkey with symbols attached to his hands. Would you like something to drink? He asked, moving to a small kitchenette and opening the fridge. Yes, please, I said leaning close to study a shadow box filled with butterfly wings hanging at eye level. I thought of my own collection I had brought from Vermont. I collect butterflies too, I announced, mostly swallowtails. But I found a morning cloak this summer. Oh, you are a lepidopteriste, eh? A collector? I nodded. I thought of the delicate dusky wings of the butterflies the buttery yellow and impossible blue of the morning cloak. He popped the tops off two glass bottles of Coke and handed one to me and one to Gilly, who drained it in a few long swallows, then wiped his mouth with the back of his hand and burped loudly. I sipped on mine, the sweetness flooding my mouth. Henri took these, Gilly explained, as my eyes found the wall of photographs again. 
The photos were street scenes mostly, pictures of people. A lady with a plastic rain bonnet and a deep frown, a hairy mole on her chin. A little boy whose lip was deformed, connected to his nostril. There was a photo of a little girl as well, probably about my age, staring defiantly at the camera, hand on her bony hip, which jutted out. She was wearing a bathing suit and a swim cap with plastic flowers. The freckles on her cheeks stood in high relief, and despite her defiant stance, her eyes were brimming with tears. This kind of photography that Henri does with her feels collaborative. And I, you just kind of touched on that when you said she asks him to take this picture, right? right? Like that kind of photography doesn't feel as predatory or as invasive. Yeah. And that's sort of this contrast to the ad campaigns and the paparazzi. And Right. He uses the language very early in the book when the first the first time that he takes her photo is during the um, session that he has with her mom to take her mom's headshots for her auditions. Yeah. And, um, and he says, do you want to make a photo? Not, can I take a photo? That distinction, a single consonant changes the entire exchange. It is, it's collaborative rather than the photos that are taken of her. You know, there's the paparazzi play a big role um, later in the story after Ryan is discovered and becomes sort of this young star on the rise. And, you know, I felt there was a certain like thievery, you know, these, these paparazzi or photographers stealing, you know, stealing moments from her um, and capitalizing on them, commodifying them. And, and with Henri, it was always, she was giving permission, you know, there's consent being offered um, in this collaborative process of making art together. That's so interesting because that's also sort of a buzzword in me too. Right, right. He used photography as a sort of an, an allegory or analogy for some of those other ideas around consent and autonomy and agency. Right. And also just sort of like the protective nature of of children, like these highly sexualized predatory behaviors. Yeah. And, you know, it doesn't really excuse it. Look at it from today's lens. You're like, oh, well, it was a different time. Right. Yeah. That's not actually an excuse. Yeah. And I think even there's a line where she's saying in one of the childhood perspective chapters, she even says she wonders about the women and the people who were involved. In the whole process, like she, someone puts makeup on her and someone gets her dressed, someone else markets it. And like there were a lot of adult hands involved Yeah, in that. I think the book is a lot about complicity. Mm. You know, it's trying to figure out exactly how complicit her mother was. Yes. The main storyline um, with this horrible man who is a monster, <laughs> you know, what was her complicity? What was her level of involvement? And yeah. You know, I wrote this before Ghislaine Maxwell, you know, before her trials and things, but she was very much on my radar thinking like, you know, there was Epstein who we can easily say, yes, you know, he was this horrific monster. And then we have a woman, a woman who was complicit and equally monstrous in procuring young girls 
And I was really thinking about that a lot when I wrote this book. It was like, who are these women? (laughs) Who are these women and how are they benefiting? And what is this about? How can they do, how can they betray young girls? You know, I mean, it's really, it's, I didn't have an agenda, but it was like these things start coming to surface, the things, you know, that are on my mind and pop up as I'm creating a world and, and characters in that world. Yes. Oh, and I think that also the things repeat themselves, right? You know, you have like, I think there's a moment when they're, they're at the artist apartment complex and it's in a childhood memory. There's a poster on the wall and it has to do with Mondale. And then she's there today and it has to do with Black Lives Matter. Right. And so there's this sort of repeating themes. Even at Christmas, there's like these nesting dolls that the mother gives her, right? Right. We're in cycles of mother and daughter. We are simultaneously mother and daughter. Right. And we mother in the way that we were mothered or in response to how we were mothered. And there's cycles in in society as well with how we treat others. And Exactly. It was a really interesting time frame to take that and sort of demonstrate where we are today. Right. Yeah. And it's a time period that a lot of people can remember, you know, even if they were just children at that time, you know, it's, it's not like it was a hundred years ago or something, you know, it wasn't that long ago. And, and I think there's even a point where, where Ryan talks about being approached by a graduate student who's writing about sexualization of young girls in 1970s advertisements and reached out to her. And she, and at the time was like, what, <laughs> you know, couldn't see it, couldn't see it. I think too, let's see, there's, um, there's a point towards the end where she talks about um, longing for her mother's love. Like again, we're getting sort of what you're yearning for, right? And she, in her a lot of her childhood scenes, she experiences this yearning for her mother, who's who's absent from her physically often, and sometimes also emotionally distant. And she has this longing. And then, in her own mothering, you see how she how she sort of reigns that in, right? You know, she works really hard as a mom. <laughs> she works really hard to be everything that her mother was not, but also not to be the exact opposite either. You know, right. I think it would be very easy for her to smother, to be the exact, you know, 180 from her own mom. And, and what she's trying really hard to be is somewhere in between where, you know, she's allowing her daughter to become independent and grow up and yeah. be amazing. <laughs> I actually really like, this is just a small thing. It's just semantics, but you have both Ryan and her daughter call their mothers mama, Mm. mama. Mm -hmm. And I, I just think even in that one word, when you did that, you just, because Sasha's older, you know, when she's doing this, but it allows you to see through Ryan's eyes, you know, the version of Sasha that is four and saying mama. And 12 right. and saying, mama. Right. You know, my daughter, you know, is 20 and still says mama. And uh-huh. I think it helps me just in that word, yeah. just takes me to all the other versions of her. Um, Love that. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah. 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 I really, I liked that. And that, and I wondered if that had to do with French. Do you have a connection to French? There's little phrases of French and part of one of the main clues in the whole plot line right. is written in French. 
Right. No, I don't. Um, I mean, I grew up in Vermont near the Canadian border. So there was a lot of French Canadian. I think some ancestors, a minor French Canadian. I took French in high school um, and like one semester in college. I just think it's a beautiful language. And I was very much thinking of um, with Henri, I was thinking of the, you know, the French photographers. There's a certain, you know, sort of wave of French photographers, these beautiful black and white street photography. And and so I, you know, I hadn't really, it wasn't a conscious thing. Um, but I, it's funny because the book that I'm working on right now also has French character. So I might be going through my French phase or something. <laughs> yeah. So um, is there anything that I didn't ask you about? Um, I think just the West Bath community is a real place. It was the first federally funded artist residence in the United States. And um, it opened in, I think, 1969 or 1970. Um, and it was an old Bell Labs building um, on West and Bethune in, in the village that was converted into artist lofts. And many of the people who moved in in the 70s actually still live there. And when I was doing my research, I spoke to one woman who's a painter, artist, sculptor, painter, um, and she has been there since the 70s and she was there during the blackout. The book culminates the climaxes on the blackout in 1977. So she gave me all sorts of wonderful details about mm. what that night was like. And then I also um, spoke with another woman who grew up there in the you know 70s. So she was really good insight into what it looked like and felt like and which was very fun. I, I always like sort of merging pure fiction with some, you know, historical moments or historical places. And so it was really fun to, cause I, I've never lived in New York, but I love New York. And um, I didn't actually go to West Beth until after I'd written the book. And then my agent and I met, we met in the village. And so he's like, let's go walk over there. So we walked through the courtyard and there's a scene in the book when they first arrive and there's the Escher like balconies, they could just go up, up, up. And it's just like that. And I was like, it felt like I was stepping into the pages of the book, you know, which was very cool. And, you know, after having spent so much time researching and looking pictures and watching documentaries and things, I was like, oh, I'm here. This is amazing. Yeah. So what was your jumping off point? Was it the blackout? Did your plot line begin with that event? No, I actually, it began with the photograph. I mean, it really started with the photograph. And for a very long time, the book was called Untitled 1977 because the photograph is called Untitled 1977. And as I was writing, as I was researching and I found out about West Beth and then I was like, okay, you know, I'm going to have them move in 76. And then I was doing research and all of a sudden things like Son of Sam popped up and then the blackout. And I was like, oh, the photo got taken on the night of the blackout. Of course, it was literally like so many drafts into the book. I was like, oh, there's so much serendipity that goes into writing, especially historical fiction where, you know, you just, you discover something and then that feeds the fiction and then you discover something else and that feeds the fiction. And there was a lot of magic that happened, I think, when I was writing this book. Even little things like there's a scene where she's in um, Times Square with her mom and she's having an anxiety attack. And she, they stop in front of a place called Hubert's Museum. And what I found out was, so Diane Arbus, the photographer, did live at West Beth and she died there. Diane Arbus began taking photos of the people that were in these horrible freak shows um, and that were at this museum in Times Square. And so there's a moment where she sees this giant man and he, he was a real 
character um, that Diane Arbus took photos of. And I remember my agent being like, oh, you need to, you need to make it more vivid and real than just the triple X movie theaters and all that stuff. Everybody knows that about Times Square in the seventies. And, um, and so I started doing research and I was like, oh, this weird, like museum. Yeah. Very strange. And it was next door to a place called Playland that had like ski ball and like weird, just weird. That's so funny because I read through that and never even considered that that was a real thing. You should look it up. It's really interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. And she would, she would go there and take photos of, you know, these sort of people from this underworld of outcasts. Her whole career became about that. I think photography is such a, um, such an interesting art form, you know, on so many levels, right. And and how we can turn to it for historical relevance. And like, I really like, I always think of Ken Burns creating the entire documentary series from like still like the storytelling that you can glean. Storytelling. It's, it's just another form of storytelling. You know, it's, I, I think that's why I'm drawn to it as an artist is I love writing books, but books take a lot of time. And there's something amazing about, you know, looking through your viewfinder and your camera and snapping a photo and having it be something that tells as rich a story as a 500 page novel, you know, but in a single moment to capture it. You know, that's amazing to me. It's amazing to me that like the same thing that I want to do with a novel can be done in a moment. Yes. It's incredible. Yes. And then it's all in the eyes of the interpreter. Right. Right. Which is similar with novels. I will read this novel and get something different than someone else will read the novel and get something different. Photography, you think it's the whole thing is just based on the, the eyes on it. Right. And exactly. Exactly. In the context, you know, us looking at a photograph now would be different than that's sort of like the love's baby soft dad. You know, it's us looking at it now is very different than me at, you know, 11 getting ready for a school dance, looking at it. You know, it's just two different, completely different lenses. Exactly. I usually like to ask people at the end, the name of the podcast is Desideratum which is a Latin word that means things that are desired as essential. And so I always like to ask authors, storytellers, for you, if you have to explain to somebody, this is essential to me, or these things are essential to me, what do you say? Oh my goodness. So you mean things broadly or things, physical things, or? Um. The germ of it comes from a poem Uh called Desiderata. Okay. Um, My parents had it hanging on the wall when I was growing up, and I have it hanging on the wall still. And it begins with the line, go placidly amid the noise and haste and remember what peace there may be in silence. Mm. From there, it talks about vanity and aging and friendships and love and all of these sort of big essential things. But really, you could answer it in any way. Oh my goodness. That's hard. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, I think when I think about important things, I think um, in my own life, obviously family is, is huge. My children, my husband, my parents, my sister, you know, I mean, my family is central But I think as offshoots of that, there are all sorts of things. You know, we have a place in Vermont that if we're looking at physical things is probably the most valuable thing to me. And it's also 
holds my family, you know, um, if I'm thinking about things that I love that are dear to me, it would all be encapsulated in, in that place and the people find themselves inside those walls. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting that you'd pick a setting too. Yeah. It says a lot about me as a writer. I think, <laughs> you know, I go, the, go from the people and the setting and then <laughs> that's all that matters. <laughs> you write there is, is that where you, yeah. I write a lot while I'm there because um, I'm a teacher. I have ongoing reading critique groups. And so I'm always reading, but I'm always reading other writers' work. And so summer is kind of when I put a lot of that on hold and work on my own writing. I read a lot when I'm there. Um, And now the kids don't come and spend as much time there in the summer. So um, there's a lot of solitude. Solitude is another thing to go on the list, I guess. (laughs) That's a nice circular spot to stop, back where we started, talking about motherhood and empty nests. I hope you enjoyed meeting Tammy as much as I did, and that you got lost in Mara Wilson's narration, that hearing a few minutes of the audiobook for such a pretty girl left you wanting more. Thanks to Kensington Press for making this episode possible, and thank you for listening.